Anybody who tries to peg a date by which a new emerging technology is going to scale is just putting their finger in the air and, and making a guess. Battery technology is getting better, electric vehicles are getting better, but we need the uptake of those technologies to be driven by the marketplace. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders and IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by Paul Mitchell, the first and so far only president and CEO of the Energy Systems Network, an Indianapolis-based not-for-profit that works for the advancement of new energy technologies and has played a big role in positioning Indiana to compete for jobs related to electric vehicles and hydrogen power. He also serves as chair and president of Indy Autonomous Challenge, Inc. Paul grew up in West Lafayette and became interested in public policy at a young age. In high school, he helped set up a youth council to interact with city government about the issues of the day. That interest in public policy took him to Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs and eventually into state government, working for Governor Mitch Daniels as Policy Director for Economic Development, Workforce and Energy, where we had the opportunity to work together and get to know each other. In his work for Governor Daniels, Paul oversaw legislation, policy, and program development for the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, Indiana Department of Workforce Development, and Indiana Department of Labor. He also acted as the governor's liaison to the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission and the Office of Utility Consumer Counselor. During his tenure with the governor's office, he also created and directed Indiana's Office of Federal Grants and Procurement. It was while Paul was working in the economic development realm that he saw how the public and private sectors were working together to promote the life sciences sector in Indiana, and he thought the same model could be used to make Indiana a leader in the energy sector. With the help from like-minded leaders in business and education, Paul started the Energy Systems Network. That was in 2009, and he's never looked back. Neither has Indiana's energy sector. In recent years, Indiana has had several big wins in the sector, including the $2.5 billion Stellantis battery cell plant in Kokomo. Indiana is also part of the Midwest Coalition chosen last year by the U.S. Department of Energy to establish clean hydrogen hubs across the United States. Clean hydrogen is among the energy sources Paul sees as having big potential here and across the country. Here's my conversation. Paul, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Nate. So let's start with rock music. Yeah. You were a lead singer in a rock band. What happened to that band? I was. So the band started my freshman year of college, and uh, there were guys that were good at instruments, and I had been in musicals in high school and you would sing along with music in the car and one of the guys that was a good friend of mine's like all right you're gonna be the lead singer and so I actually got really into it and all through college and grad school we would practice and play shows and we sort of likened ourselves to Stone Temple Pilots, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Queens of the Stone Age, that kind of That's rock awesome. sound. Yeah. And and so were you one of the big bands in, at Purdue? At, you, no, at IU Bloomington. Is that right? Know. Yeah, we did play Purdue because some of the guys went to Purdue and I was at Bloomington. And so we would play shows at some of the, the bars there. And, you know, that was the days when I thought I could maybe become the next Scott Weiland or David Bowie or something like that. What was the name of your band? It was called Bubonic, which is kind of a silly name, but at the time it sounded cool. <laughs> no more singing in the band today? 
No, although for my 40th birthday, my wife, Olivia, built a karaoke room in the in our basement. So you have to come over and That's we can, awesome. we can, I can show you some of my, <laughs> some of my skills. <laughs> I'll have to. Well, let's uh, move forward to things you've been up to more recently. Electric vehicles, hydrogen power, battery production, alternative energy sources now have become obviously in the news all the time. But you helped start the Energy Systems Network way back in 2009, which was focused on how Indiana could take the lead and and prosper in the energy transition. So uh, you've been at, at this quite some time. Was the Energy Systems Network ahead of its time back in 2009? No, I don't think so. Actually, if you go back to 2008, 2007, 2008, there was actually a lot going on in this kind of energy transition. At that time, we were dealing with higher energy prices, rising energy prices. Katrina hit and natural gas prices went up to like $15 a decatherm. We had to create the, Governor Daniels created the Help by Neighbor Hating Fund to try to, to help people cover their the cost of their energy bills. Price of gas was going up. And so you saw transition to kind of new energy resources with the building of the wind farms in northern Indiana. Ethanol was becoming a big thing in the state. And then Indiana had this long history in battery technology, really is the origin of what was originally lead acid batteries and later uh, lithium ion batteries. So there was, there was a lot going on in 2008 when we formed Energy Systems Network. However, I think our anticipation was that those technologies would scale kind of right away within the next five years. So, you know, before 2010, but that didn't happen. And I think there's a couple of reasons. Probably the biggest was the emergence of the unconventional oil and gas industry and the boom, some people call it fracking or, you know, to use different terms. But all of a sudden, U.S. went from, you know, being very dependent on foreign oil and questions whether we would have to import natural gas to producing a lot of natural gas that dropped prices. It made gasoline cheaper. It made energy cheaper. And so there was a pause, which I think was a good thing because it allowed those technologies to get better before they scaled. And so coming into, let's say, 2017, 2018, now you're seeing battery deployments, solar deployments, hydrogen technology, electric vehicles that are that are much more cost effective, much better products probably than they would have been in those those early days. So we were early pioneers in the marketplace. We weathered this period of of sort of the lull in scaling these technologies and now here we are right in the middle of it uh, again. Yeah, and I know Indiana has had some big wins the last couple of years. I mentioned Stellantis in the in the opening, the the battery facility that's uh, being built right now in Kokomo. But help us connect the dots a little bit between Energy Systems Network and some of these projects that we continue to hear about here in Indiana. What role does Energy Systems Network play in in bringing some of these uh, opportunities to the state? Our goal has always been to pursue projects that require public-private partnerships, where you need industry, government, many cases academia to come together, either to do it for the first time or the first time at scale. And so thinking about some of the technologies that are now scaling within the state, solar is a good example. There's a lot of solar development, hundreds of megawatts, actually gigawatts of, of solar being installed across the state. you got the Mammoth Solar Project that Doral, one of our board members, is leading that's over a gigawatt uh, of power. But early 2010, 2011 timeframe, there were no large-scale solar projects in the state. And the regulators weren't really sure if they could approve them. You had companies saying, is this too risky? So we worked with Duke Energy, NSWC Crane. We pulled in the Indian Utility Regulatory Commission and got 
a 14.7 megawatt project built just outside of Crane. At that time, that was huge. The only other project that was going on was at the airport, and this was bigger than that. So that's a good example. Another is we launched something called Battery Innovation Center back in 2011 to serve as a test bed and a prototyping facility for next generation battery technology. And for a number of years, that organization worked with hundreds of companies around the country. And eventually, in the last few years, as we've started to see the state attract these major battery plants, the ones you mentioned from Samsung and Stellantis or Samsung and GE, you know, Battery Innovation Center has been part of the storyline to justify why Indiana is a good place to make those investments. So we can point to some of these early entries that we made through ESN projects that are now starting to scale with big economic development projects. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Uh, you, you were growing up in Lafayette, went to college in Bloomington and graduated from IU's uh, School of Public Environmental Affairs. You've obviously made the jump to energy and, and we're going to get into a little bit later uh, autonomous vehicles and all these uh, newest technologies that are coming to market. Um, curious what public policy questions you were interested, you know, you know when you first got started and, and then how you made the transition or move to energy policy in the future of uh, these, these technologies and energies that uh, we're harnessing today. I think when I first showed up at SPIA as a freshman, I was just a sponge interested in everything. You know, you're, you're trying to figure out what aspects of policy are the most in, intriguing and, you know, reading kind of the old sociology, economic philosophers, uh, Weber, Durkheim, Smith, even Marx. But there was a lot of interest at that time in the work of people like Michael Porter uh, and even the professor at SPIA, the guy named David Audrich, in this kind of science and study of economic development and innovation. Like, where does innovation come from? How do you scale technology innovation? There was this cluster theory that thought, okay, you need to create little Silicon Valleys in different parts of the country and that each sector is going to develop within its own cluster. And you, you know that we worked in, in, in cluster theories uh, in the Daniels administration. So that exposure got me interested in this concept of economic development and innovation. So hydrogen, people are, are talking about hydrogen a lot today. And, and we've you know, just won this, this hydrogen hub opportunity because it's a mid, Midwest uh, coalition. But can you give us a little bit, maybe a little primer on Indiana's involvement in this hydrogen hub and uh, what the opportunity is with, with hydrogen? I don't, I don't think a lot of people are really familiar with uh, what that's going to mean. So here's another example of where some of the, the board member companies that make up ESN, I think it was Cummins and Duke Energy, uh, MISO to some extent, that encouraged us to start looking at hydrogen back in 2017. And uh, we actually did a study for the IEDC looking at what could the hydrogen economy mean for the state of Indiana. And going into that study, I assumed and some of my colleagues thought it would mostly be focused on hydrogen fuel cells for trucks or for cars as an alternative to electric vehicles. Turned out when you look at hydrogen as a fuel source, it really is attractive as an industrial fuel. It is essentially something that can be blended with or in some cases even replace natural gas. And so we use natural gas in a lot of, of manufacturing and a lot of industrial processes. And hydrogen is essentially a lower carbon option for that. So why Indiana? One, we're the most manufacturing intensive state in the US. And so we use a tremendous amount of not just electricity, but natural gas in our manufacturing, whether that's steel or pharmaceuticals or, or, or producing concrete. But also there's this unique confluence of assets, particularly in Northwest Indiana, that make a hydrogen economy very viable. One, you have these, these huge energy users in the BP Whiting Refinery, 
the two big steel mills, one Cleveland Cliffs, one U.S. Steel that may have a new owner at some point. And then just south of Northwest Indiana, there is a subsurface geology that is very conducive to the storage of carbon, right? So for your listeners, this may be completely new and, and completely different, but essentially you can take CO2 and you can inject it deep into the earth's surface. And once it gets down low enough, it turns into a solid. And so it's almost like reverse coal production, right? Huh. You're putting the, yeah. the, the, the carbon down there. So the, the proximity of that storage capability for CO2, these big potential consumers of hydrogen allows Indiana to be a producer of clean hydrogen that will hopefully help us, you know, keep those industries thriving in Northwest Indiana for another century. That's helpful because uh, I think that's a energy source most Hoosiers are still trying to wrap their arms around. Very helpful. Turning a little bit to, to EVs, that's, of course, uh, electric vehicles, and there's so much news in Indiana today and across the country today. There's a lot of government incentives that are in this space. Uh, you serve on what's called Indiana's Electric Vehicle Product Commission, a group formed, I think, back in 2021 by the legislature to explore how Indiana's automakers and workforce can adapt to the evolving industry, the electric vehicle industry. What are some of the initiatives that uh, that group has worked on and, and is looking to for the future? So this was a, an idea that was really kicked off by Representative Mike Karakoff with support from Senator Buck. These are longtime political leaders that are from the Kokomo region. And I think they could see what was going on with the significant investments Stellantis was making in its own facilities, even before the battery factories came there, that they wanted to get people together to say, okay, what are the right public policies that we need to have within the, the General Assembly? What does the General Assembly need, need to be doing to support the IEDC to attract these jobs of the future and make sure that as they come, that the workforce can transition from traditional automotive to uh, transportation electrification? So the group, and I give a lot of credit to Governor Holcomb and, and his team, Earl Good. They said, okay, if we're going to create this kind of a commission, let's not just fill it with elected officials and bureaucrats. Let's put actual industry people on there. And so there are people from GM, from Stellantis, from Toyota that are part of it, other subject matter experts like myself. And the focus has been initially on what can we do to attract these investments? And it's almost like cut the tiger by the tail, right? Because now we have these three gigafactories that are being built uh, almost simultaneously within the state, two related to Stellantis and Samsung and one Samsung and, and General Motors. You know, collectively, those facilities, when completed, are going to employ thousands of people and, and it's a whole new industry. And so now we're transitioning the focus to what do we need to do to make sure the workforce is ready for these new jobs. But I think it's a great group. And Indiana, I think, was really one of the first to create these kinds of commissions and other states since then have been looking to kind of copy us, which is pretty typical here in Indiana. I'm curious on your perspective on this subject. So we keep hearing lately in the news, I don't know if it's uh, how real this narrative is. So I'm curious on your perspective, but we keep hearing, especially as we've gone through this cold snap that, uh, you know, electric vehicles may be uh, not as high in demand as the industry is actually producing. You know, you hear about Hertz, for example, you know, selling a whole bunch of uh, electric vehicles, Teslas. And one of the concerns or issues potentially raised is, are, are we building too much, like all these battery plants in this state, or, or is there going to be the capacity, to, or I should say, is there going to be the demand, right, from the consumer? I'm just curious on your take on that, given your all your work in the industry. Anybody who tries to peg a date by which a new emerging technology is going to scale is just 
putting their finger in the air and, and making a guess. Battery technology is getting better. Electric vehicles are getting better. But we need the uptake of those technologies to be driven by the marketplace. And we need those products to be competitive from a cost standpoint, which they are mostly there now. If you take sort of total cost of ownership, they cost a little bit more upfront, but you don't have to buy gasoline. But they're not there yet from uh, an operational efficiency standpoint, right? So if you can't rely on the car to have a full charge when it's cold, I drive a Tesla. My Tesla was, was pretty low on battery the last few days. I had to go to supercharger to charge it up. So that doesn't mean that they are not going to eventually become a major part of the, the automotive fleets of individual consumers and of governments and of rental car companies. It's just a matter of, of timing. And I think I'm a big believer that the industry needs to be able to stand on its own and needs to be able to advance with some support from government, at least making them giving them access to the same kind of subsidies that you give to oil and give to internal combustion engine vehicles. But the idea of sort of commanding that individual consumers should adopt these things because it's their duty, that's just not going to work. So I think by the time those battery factories are done and up and running, I, I actually believe they will be very much necessary in the United States. Keep in mind that what's happening with those factories is not necessarily for huge projected new demand. It's also a function of us moving modes of production from Southeast Asia and China into the United States as part of this whole global reshoring uh, phenomenon. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very optimistic that those facilities will be will be very you know wildly successful and we're ready for them. How many more facilities are going to be needed and the uptick of EV adoption is something that will play out over a decade or more. It's not something that you can just snap your fingers and make happen. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with Paul Mitchell, President and CEO of Energy Systems Network and President of India Autonomous Challenge, Inc. So I wanted to turn to the uh, India Autonomous Challenge, which is from a technology perspective, a cutting edge opportunity that you've invo been involved with from the onset. And I know we just you just got finished with the latest one, the latest rendition in Las Vegas during the Consumer Electronics Show. First one, I, I believe, was held here in Indy in 2021. Give us some background on the Indy Autonomous Challenge, how it came about and how it's grown just in the last few years. Throughout my career, both in, in the Daniels administration and with ESN, you know, I've always really been drawn to these big ideas that are audacious, but that there's actually a solid plan and logic behind them, right? That, that, and so we had this idea that Indiana was known for racing, was known for automotive. You have this new emerging focus on autonomy, which is still very much bleeding edge. You know, we're not seeing a lot of autonomous vehicles yet on the roads anywhere in the world, but it's coming and it's a very big, important technological area that brings a lot of different core innovations together, AI, uh, sensor fusion, high throughput computing, uh, advanced uh, localization. And so we said, okay, can we combine these two things that we're known for, motorsport and future of automotive through some type of grand challenge that would try to bring back the excitement that the DARPA grand challenges had had in, in the early 2000s. 
So starts is a big idea, but to plan it out, we we talk to a lot of very credible people. First, we work with the folks at the Speedway, Mark Miles and, and Doug Bowles, who are supportive of it. Then we talked to a lot of industry luminaries. We actually had to go, you know, to Silicon Valley to talk to some of the people that had gotten Waymo started at Google, a guy named Sebastian Thrun, uh, Riley Brennan, who started Trucks, which was is is still today kind of the go-to seed investor for for automotive. Then we came back to the state and said, okay, to do something like this, we're probably going to need the support not only of the IDC, but philanthropies. We talked to Clay Robbins and to Rob Smith. So a lot of legwork went in in 2017 to sort of saying, okay, if we're going to announce that we're going to do something like this, we actually have to have a credible product to put out there. And credit to the state of Indiana, credit to the Lilly Endowment, to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they were willing to take that leap of faith and say, we'll, we'll run a prize competition and build fully autonomous race cars that had never been built in the world. We had at least one OEM, a big name, won't name their name, but they basically said, this isn't going to work. It's not possible. So not everybody thought it was a great idea. And then we put the call out and we had 31 universities from 15 states and 11 countries say, this is something we would want to participate in, which is exactly what we were hoping would happen. And several years later, by, by 2021, we're running at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. More than $100 million you know, was invested to make that happen between industry supplying components and hardware and technology, universities spending millions of dollars to build up PhD research teams to work on this challenge. We ran the cars at Indy and you know, that was originally going to be it. It was a one-time prize competition, give out a million-dollar prize to the Technical University of Munich who won that race. But we realized quickly this is really a, a compelling applied research platform and innovation platform. And so we've kept it going. And we've run races at CES in Las Vegas. We ran a race at the Monza F1 circuit in Italy. We've run a Texas Motor Speedway. And along the way, you know, we're attracting the best and brightest minds from top universities, including Purdue, but also places like MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, Technical University of Munich, who are coming regularly to Indiana to work on this advanced technology platform that we think eventually will lead to, you know, commercial opportunities here within the state and that will be very, very fruitful. Is the prize money, has it remained the same each year or is it, has it differed? You said the first, I think the first no, year was- a Yeah, we're, so we're working on that. You got, if you've got any ideas of uh, somebody who wants to write a big check, let me know. But now, so the, the original prize competition was, was that one time. And then since then, you know, we've had much smaller prizes just trying to, you know, make sure that universities are able to recover some of their costs. But uh, we are actually in the process of, of going out and trying to raise some additional philanthropic support for some bigger prizes uh, in this space. As a Hoosier, and uh, I know uh, how you think about this from an economic development perspective, it seems to me that it would be phenomenal to have this race at least you know once a year. Maybe you mentioned some of the other places that's taken place uh, in Europe and Texas, et cetera. But it seemed to me that uh, you'd, you'd want as much as you can to have all the technology in terms of, uh, you know, like we try to go after from an economic developer perspective, some of the teams that, that race at Indy the here. And we, we, we know, of course, over time, all the technologies that have come out of racing in general at the Indy 500. How do we get the autonomous challenge to be the actual race take place here at our, at our track at the Indy 500 track here? Funny that you ask, because we announced uh, as part of of several things that we rolled out at CES that we actually are coming back to ah. Indianapolis Motor Speedway 
on September 6th this year. Fantastic. Uh, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Was, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if it's breaking news or not, but uh, it's breaking news to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, it is. It is. So that's um, awesome. It's something we've been working on for quite a while. Um, I think there's always been a desire to, to get back to that's Indianapolis awesome. Motor Speedway. Uh, Mark Miles, Doug Bowles, and the team there, you know, have stepped up and and worked with us to to make it happen. It's it's not an easy thing to do because our program requires a lot of testing. So for some projects that want to come, some races that want to come to Indy or companies that want to test it, Indy, they just need to book a day, two days. They show up, they run the cars around, they leave. For us, we need something like eight to ten days. So working with IMS to try to find eight to ten days is is not easy. That place is in in high demand. So. They did it. We got it done and and we're going to be there in September. And I would say that while we have not been racing at IMS the last couple of years, all of the cars are here. They're all in a, in a lab at the Emerging Manufacturing Collaboration Center just down the road, not far from Speedway. You know, a lot of the suppliers and the, the engineering know-how is here. And we really are trying to build this hub around high-speed automation within the state. That's really exciting. Uh, congratulations uh, for getting that done because I know that'll be something I know Hoosiers will want to come and, and witness themselves. Yeah. Uh, so that's 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 really and it, exciting. And it's gotten a lot better than the first event. The first event was really cool. I mean, the cars, I think we're hitting 140 miles per hour, but now we have cars that have set all of the autonomous speed records. You know, they're passing at 180 miles an hour. They're hitting top speeds of 192 miles an hour. They're starting to really race like human-driven race cars, even though it's controlled entirely by AI. I'm just curious. I know it's only been a few years, but are you starting to see that there may be opportunity to take some of the, the development and the technology development that happens as part of uh, these teams getting better and better on the autonomous side and the racing side, some of this opportunity to come to market to actually make it to new company yeah. formation or to new technologies that existing companies can adopt? Or is there early signs of that? And do you see that uh, kind of be- becoming a bigger part of the Yeah, so there's so there's already learnings that are getting commercialized. That is largely our partnership with companies that are supplying components into these cars. So Luminar provides LIDARs, Continental provides radars, DSpace provides the the computers, uh, Cisco provides some of the networking communication technology, Bridgestone provides the tires. So those companies will use the data and the analysis of this team of 200 plus PhD students from around the world to figure out, you know, how can their components work in these more extreme conditions at higher speeds, higher vibration, higher temperatures. So that's already happening. The big breakthrough would be sort of, can we help move the needle on true high-speed automation? So without wanting to take your readers down a rabbit hole, autonomous vehicles that really launched through the DARPA Grand Challenge have primarily focused on low-speed urban-suburban use cases, basically robo-taxis, right? And that's what you hear in the news. You see that Waymo is running cars in, in San Francisco. Cruise, which is tied to GM, was running cars in San Francisco. They had some issues. They had to pull the cars back. And that's an important area. There's no doubt. But turns out humans are pretty good at driving cars from the speeds of zero to 60 miles per hour. So maybe it's more convenient to have a car drive you around a city, but we can do it ourselves. Our view of the world is that once you get above, let's say, 100 miles an hour, particularly on highways in darkness, that's when the human capabilities really start to drop. And unless you're a top race car driver, which almost none of us are, you know, you really don't feel safe in those environments. So if we can prove, and it's going to take a while, it's not going to happen overnight, but if we can prove that autonomous vehicles can operate safely at speeds 130, 150 miles per hour, then we can reach a future where there will be mobility, either moving goods or product or eventually people 
at those extreme high speeds on highway corridors. Those highway corridors may have to have certain technologies, certain barriers, certain safety requirements. But again, it's a public-private partnership. You need industry, government, academia working together to get us to that level. So take you back again a little bit here. So right out of graduate school, I think it was right out of graduate school, you started working for Governor Mitch Daniels. We talked a little bit about that earlier. I'm curious from your perspective, what did you learn from Governor Daniels and from that experience as a whole that might continue to serve you know, you today and, and all your professional work? The short answer is what didn't I learn? I was extremely, extremely lucky. I was actually living in Indianapolis with that rock band, planning to take a year, maybe two years off between grad school. And I thought I was going to go to law school. And a professor called me, his name was Les Linkowski, and, and he knew Mitch and said, hey, there's, they're putting together an administration for this new governor. I gave him your name. You might get a call from somebody. And I got a call from Harry Gonzo and told me to come in for an interview with a guy named Neil Pickett. And I had to go out and buy a suit because I didn't have one at the time. And went in and, and had that interview. And really, from the moment I got inside, the way that the senior leaders there, people like Mark Miles, Harry Gonzo, later Earl Good, Neil Pickett, Jane Jankowski, Mitch Robe, yourself and others, you know, embraced this young guy that had a lot of big ideas, but was really special for me and, and was critical to the development of my viewpoints on uh, society and, and, and politics and, and just life. What did I learn? I think two key things. Both are very much traditional Mitch Daniels kind of guidance. One is, you know, ideas are great, but you need a plan, right? And so, you know, I've, I've always been somebody who it's ideas come very naturally. I, I want to try to do something new. I love talking about new ideas, but realizing that you have to actually synthesize that down to a plan and a strategy, write a white paper, put that together. That's, that's, that's the business mind of Mitch, that right? Is, I mean, that that's, is, that's, that's that is. Uh, taking ideas to uh, practical yeah. reality, yeah. And then and then the other is the power of public-private partnerships. I mean, the, what he did with major moves, what he did with whole, the creation of the IEDC, so this notion that in order to do real transformational change in society and to manage the disruption of technology that that is inevitably happening at all times, you need government industry and in some cases academia to all be pushing in the same direction. And so that really is what, you know, got my career going. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's it's awesome to see what you've done with those learnings. Uh, we've, we've talked about uh, a lot of them and uh, you've done some incredible work that uh, is paying dividends for the state. So I'm going to ask you a question I ask all of my Indiana 250 guests, and uh, you're particularly well positioned, I think, to, to help us on this one a little bit. What's one big idea to take Indiana to the next level, make it a, make it a better place to live or start a business or grow a company? And, and you're a big idea guy, so I, I was excited to ask <laughs> you, you this one. Put me on the spot for this one, all right? <laughs> so, and this isn't necessarily a completely you know new or radically new idea. It's something I've been talking about for a while, and I think there's other people in the state that have you know, have a similar viewpoint. There's a mega trend going on, which is the convergence of technologies. So we talked, I talked earlier about this guy, Michael Porter, that came up with the theory of clusters and that different sectors will grow based on clusters. And, and really part of Indiana's strategy was to create these different sector initiatives. Right. ESN is one of those, right? Focused on energies. You have life sciences, you have tech industry, manufacturing, and that worked very well. And we saw a lot of, of dividends uh, paying from that. Technology is converging. So whether it's digital technology with AI, Internet of Things, whether it's the emergence of things like battery technology, there's no sort of this technology is automotive. This technology is life sciences. I mean, automotive is looking at batteries. Life sciences is looking at small solid state batteries that go into people's bodies, right? 
so that convergence of technologies that's happening means that we have to think of a new theory, a new approach to economic development that is not so sector specific. And I think if you go talk to CEOs of big corporations and even startups, they'll say, you know, they're not really necessarily a pure life sciences company anymore. I think you had you had uh, the, the, the leadership of IU Health. I think they'll tell you they're, they're a data company, right? They're, uh, they're an innovation company. So I think that's one thing that we need to do. So how do you serve that convergence of technology? I think what we need is kind of a, a reevaluation of what is the 21st century, to use Mitch Daniels' term, what's the 21st century sandbox? And with that is what is the 21st century infrastructure that the state needs? Our approach to infrastructure, and we've gotten very high rankings in infrastructure. We did a great job. Mitch Daniels brought in major moves that you know pushed us from being in a, in a trouble spot to really being a leader in, in road construction and, and management. But we've been patching over infrastructure that was really built for the 19th century. We're now in the 21st century. And if we're going to be competitive in the second half of the 21st century, we need to look at infrastructure differently. That means we need energy solutions that are more diverse, that are different. We need mobility options that are different. We're not just going to pave over the same roads. We're going to have to think about autonomous vehicles. We're going to have to think about I know this sounds crazy, but aircraft that fly us from place to place, digital infrastructure, fiber, low-level uh, satellites, uh, natural resources are going to be used differently. We're seeing that with water uh, as a key topic, but it's also land. Renewables take up huge acreage of rural land. So rural communities who never really played a role in this kind of technology innovation are suddenly confronted with technology innovation at their front door. And then there's the question of capital. Our nation is in a position where we don't have the capital at the federal level. Thankfully, as a state, we have AAA bond rating. We're not as powerful as the United States government, but you know we have the kind of, of capital capacity that many small countries have. And we're going to have to find other industry partners because the kind of capital investments that will be required to transform our infrastructure will be beyond what the government can fund on its own. And so you're going to need things like major moves. You're going to need other other created approaches. And then the last thing I would say is talent. 21st century infrastructure includes talent. And we're going to have to come up with new ways to attract and, and retain and prepare that talent. I think getting Hoosiers to start to think about, I know this seems far off, but getting Hoosiers to start to think about how do we really compete and how do we ensure that we are the most productive manufacturing intensive? I'm so thankful that we are the most manufacturing intensive state in the US and we have so much pride in that. And as long as we stay that, we are going to thrive. But to do that, we need to start planning for the second half of this century and we need to put the infrastructure in place just like they did in the early 19th century to make us thrive in the later half of the 19th century. And I, I, I hope that people don't think that is too radical and then we can start working on those challenges. I knew you'd have the most thoughtful answer to that question that I've <laughs> asked anybody so far. That was good and uh, excited to kind of decipher that a little bit more down the road and with you offline. Well, Paul, we've made it to off the record speed round where I give you some questions and you try to give me quick answers. Uh, you might expound on a couple of the questions, but uh, we'll get ready to go roll. You ready? Yep. Okay. Favorite movie? Big Lebowski. Favorite place to vacation? place called Lake Aseo in Italy. Favorite musical artist? This one was very hard because, you know, I was a lead singer in a rock band, but I'm going to say David Bowie just because he was so incredibly diverse and talented. What is the first thing you do in the morning? 
So it depends on the morning, but often my wife Olivia and I are having to get up and deal with our one, two, and three-year-olds who are waking up, you know, calling for mommy or daddy. Oh, wow. You've done this, right? It's a wonderful way to wake up in the morning. It is. Title of the last book you read. I'm going to cheat here. The last book I read was, I think, Elon Musk's bio, but that doesn't sound all that interesting. Uh, Everyone's been kind of reading that. The last book I read that I think was really part of what I'm trying to uh, study and understand was uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by, by Jared Diamond. I spent a lot of my time reading what's going on today, but hadn't spent enough time, I think, looking back over very, very long periods of time. And it's a wonderful book that maybe helps us understand where we are in the context of tens of thousands of years of, of human development and societal development. What food you cannot live without? I think sushi, just because I think it's so incredibly diverse. I mean, it's not something I want to eat every day, but I'd say sushi. Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Michael Jordan. I'm young, but not that young. <laughs> you, you, eventually, you'll have to find somebody really young to give you the LeBron James answer. Best advice you ever received? Mark Miles said this to me once, and I don't mean it to be harsh, but it was just, he said, you know, people don't get rich off of a W-2. And what I think that was, I don't think he was trying to say, you know, the goal in life is to get rich. I think what he was saying is, you know, if you just work at a regular job, which is great, you can have an impact. But if you really want to have a big impact, maybe wealth creation is is part of, of showing somebody having an impact, you've got to get out there and you've either got to start a business or you've got to pursue an opportunity for which there's risk. And it's nice to have a paycheck, but life's more than just the paycheck. That's good advice. Advice for a young person who wants to make a difference in their community. Going on my own experience, I think working in government, whether it's at the local, state, or national levels, especially when you're very young, and believe me, it's the best time to do it because you can afford it and you'll learn a lot, is a good thing to do. And I I think regardless of whether you end up going into the world of business or academia, or obviously if you go into government and politics, Understanding how government works at any of those levels and how you interact with with people from different parts of society is really important. Otherwise, you end up having a pretty big blind spot. If you go to work straight for a company and you've only been in industry, you kind of have this blind spot and maybe are, will be confused as to why certain things are playing out the way they are. But I think if you can get in and, and do a stint in public service, it'll pay its dividends uh, for years to come. Couldn't agree with you more, Paul. Well, Paul, thank you for joining me on the Indiana 250 podcast. Thanks for all you're doing to make Indiana a player in some of these breaking technologies. And thanks for all you've done for our state and continue to do, Paul. Thank you, Nate. This is a great platform. Thanks to Paul Mitchell, president and CEO of Energy Systems Network and president of India Autonomous Challenge for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders in IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off the record conversation soon. Mm -hmm.